Deep Space Nine is the Star Trek with the greatest focus on political concepts like colonialism, feminism, queerness, and post-scarcity economics. Join hosts and guests who aren't just Trekkies, but activists, academics, artists, therapists, and more as we take a deep dive into the text and subtext where few Star Trek podcasts have gone before. Here on Deep Space Dive, we'll be discussing Deep Space Nine's themes and characters, not doing recaps. Also, because we're talking about the show in its entirety, this show will be full of spoilers. If you're watching Deep Space Nine for the first time, we recommend that you finish your binge and then go back and listen to the podcast from the beginning. It will be archived and waiting for you. Indeed, hosted at Graphic Policy Radio, because I keep not making a Deep Space Dive spinoff RSS feed because I'm neurotic. Like, this is just a fact. Um, Who am I? I'm Ilana Levin, also the host of Graphic Policy Radio. I've worked at the intersection of comics, nerd culture, and social change for over a decade. And my biggest Trek cred is I gave a speech on fan activism at a rally organized by Lita, a.k.a. Chase Masterson. I'm Sarah Daniel Rasher. When I'm not getting paid to use math to save the world, I write about film and figure skating. I was the founding captain of my high school Star Trek club, and I once got Nicole DeBoer to kiss me at a convention. I'm still jealous. And joining us today, I have a guest who I like am extraordinarily, I'm extraordinarily excited about all our guests, but I'm extraordinarily excited about Raphael Shimanoff. Raph, who I've known for a long time through activism and organizing world in New York. Uh, Raph is an artist and activist who arrived in the U.S. with his parents as a HIAS child refugee from the Soviet-dominated Uzbekistan. He has a Bukharan Jew, one of Central Asia's many minority ethnic groups, and who have largely settled in Queens. You've likely seen him go viral when Ellen DeGeneres' lawyers tried to censor his criticism of her support of disgraced former President George Bush on Twitter. His installing an illegal exhibit in the Whitney Museum to protest this leader's manufacturing of chemical explosives to tr- sold to Trump's Border Patrol, or his 12 million viewer live stream during the JFK airport protests against the Trump Muslim ban, I was there, uh, from the airport he and his family arrived in as refugees. So you guys have probably seen Roth's digital work online um, if you're involved in following social issues at all. Um, And you might not know Ralph as a big Trekkie. Uh, Ralph spends his days taking on Amazon's racist surveillance and abuses of local democracies, workers, small businesses, and the climate with the Athena Coalition, a national grassroots movement made up of frontline communities taking on Amazon. Today, we're talking about Worf. We first met him on The Next Generation when the sight of a Klingon on the bridge of the Enterprise signaled a new era of Star Trek stories. During his seven-year run on The Next Generation, Worf raised a child, got knocked down by lots of enemies and a few blue plastic (laughs) barrels, hooked up with Deanna Troy, and became one of the franchise's most beloved characters. Apparently, I mean, literally all the TNG I've seen was episodes I watched in preparation for this show, and I guess also a Q episode, so... I'm taking your word for it, and it sounds about right. From sounds this about right. podcast is clearly my backdoor way of getting you to watch TNG. Um, <laughs> successful, successful. Anyway, not, not only Worf, popular, he's the most. I think I read the most recurring character throughout all of the different series. Right? Yeah. We, um, Amy, and I actually counted it up, and he's tied with Riker. Oh, well then, I guess that's because of the new Picard series where they didn't have Worf and they did have Riker. Exactly. That's where, well, it's that and Riker is on Lower Decks. Oh, wow. That's okay, how that's Riker, a lot of Riker catches up. 
That's a whole lot of Riker. It Sorry. is really a whole lot of Riker. Too much Riker. Yeah. <laughs> if you count Thomas Riker as the same character as William Riker, he actually beats him by one, but I do not. That is a separate person. When Worf arrived in Deep Space Nine's fourth season, that made him the only character to become a series regular on two 90s Trek series. On Deep Space Nine, Worf stood out as a buttoned-up rule follower, but also became a beloved member of the crew and a point of entry into intricate Klingon political drama, as well as half of one of Star Trek's most epic on-screen romances. Possibly the hottest one that was actually in canon? Today, we'll talk about all things Worf, but especially about his depiction as a Jewish person of color, directly within the show's coding of his background, and metaphorically as an individual who finds meaning in his multiple identities. So I knew I wanted my friend Ralph on the show from the moment he told me he was a DS9 fan. And I let him pick the topic because there were so many things I could imagine him choosing. But when he told me that he related so much to Worf as a fellow Jew of color growing up in a new culture, my jaw dropped. How did I not realize that Worf was Jewish? I mean, it's probably because I didn't watch TNG till I began prepping for this episode. But if I'd known that the great Israeli actor Theodore Beichel was Worf's father... You know, if your dad plays Tevya in Israel and becomes president of an actor's union, uh, you might be a Jew. (laughs) So but apparently it runs deeper than just the symbolism of his dad. Um, So I I'm I'm so excited to, like, learn about the Judaism of Worf. Um, Raf, how did you get into Star Trek in the first place? Uh, My parents, like when we so my parents fled Uzbekistan. Um, I was two years old. They were. We were, he asked refugees and um, uh, basically they learned English when they came here uh, through Star Trek. So it was also kind of juxtaposed with them seeing this whole new country like and like system of things and commercialism and things that they were isolated from. Uzbekistan is, was, you know occupied by the Soviet Union during communism. During communism, I I always like to remind people, um, you know, white supremacy masquerading and colonialism masquerading (laughs) as communism. But generally speaking, Star Trek was one of their, like, entries into American culture, into the language. And it, it was particularly magical because it blurred the lines um, between what was um, magical offline. Like, so like when they would go to the store and this is like, um, this is like a trope, you know, like in like um, coming to America and like other movies and what's owned Robin Williams as as a Russian immigrant where you go into a store and you're just like in awe of all the options and flavors and availability of items and um, medicine and like all sorts of things. And they didn't like, won't, when they saw things in Star Trek, they were challenged to be like, well, is this the fictional part of Star Trek or do they have this in America? Do they have, you know, my mom became a nurse and she expected like, you know, she, she was made fun of by, by her colleagues for asking where the turbo lift was in the hospital when she started. Oh, totally. uh, You know, and expected, you know, because you're constantly surprised every day you go outside with like very new modern things compared to, Um, some technologies that were like 20 years back where they came from even more in some cases. 
and like so like you kind of expected certain things and like for example like the tricorder like was that real or is that star trek so it was a really really um important aspect of our life and it was the, really the one where we um spent shared time the most outside of the dinner table wow you're my second friend at least who said they learned english from star trek <laughs> like so it's a real thing for real and I love that it can have that role for people. Um, and so, like, when, when you told me that you wanted to do Worf, like, you made, like, a pitch around him that just really knocked my, 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 my socks off. Like, what, what, what was it that made you identify with his experience so much? It's funny because, like, initially when you mentioned it, I was thinking this kind of surface level thing where I would pitch this surface level aspect where, oh, wow, his parents adopted him they were russian and they were uh you know presenting as jews <laughs> both yeah. of them. a lot of people talk about um the father but the mom is also russian jewish descent she's in she's from london she was a singer her name was changed to like georgia brown and she moved to hollywood she died preparing to do a tribute to another jew of color sammy davis jr um she wow. herself is also a jewish uh, icon that rarely is really brought up but, but both of them um exhibiting all of these kind of jewish coding <laughs> in their mannerisms and in their expectations and their language with wharf um really on the surface level to me was interesting enough and then i started to really like uh like for this talk like just yesterday and even last week just thinking about it more and there's this whole other level uh that i'll get into but like the the surface level part, it is really like Buharian Jews there. Uh, we are, you know, there's not that many of us. We are less than, I think we're like 300 or 200 something thousand maybe. And around the world. And I'm sorry, 300, a little over 300,000. And um, most of us settled in either Israel or, um, or New York uh, there's one, you know, the last remaining Jew in Afghanistan who's still there. I think he's Buharian. <laughs> but um, but generally speaking, um, on the surface level of it, our culture was very much influenced by so many things, but also colonialism. And, and the Russian aspect of it was colonialist, but it was also, it's hard to like tell, it's, how do you say, it's hard to pull them apart uh, mm -hmm. from our identity. You know, our identity is intertwined with scores of Central Asian cultures, Chinese culture and Korean culture and Mongolian culture, and then also very dominant Russian culture. And um, in that way, I sort of uh, really connected to Worf because of that infusion um, into his life and also um, him being transplanted from his community when when my parents came here there really weren't any other buharians here um there was no ethnic enclave like right now we have a town called rigo park in queens which people <laughs> endearingly refer to as Rigostan because of us and um and that's there now but when we were when we were out here we were rather isolated and i really felt a lot of um kinship with wharf um because of that yeah initially you know Coming to this, my knowledge of Worf from TS from DS Nine, I didn't realize that Worf was Russian 
un- until like I found out he won. He had a son. I mean, boy, does he have a son and we'll talk about him. But then his son's name was Alexander. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And I that's when I Googled it. And I'm like, uh, uh, Worf is Russian. And it's interesting because if you're watching TNG and it's like the early 90s, Worf being Russian is like hugely politically significant. But by the time it's DS9, I, you know, it seems like the the Cold War theme in that particular angle is not as as interesting to the writers of the show, but I think it might still be interesting to the viewers. And a part of me wonders, though, if maybe some of the reason that some of the writers dropped it is because by that point, people are looking at Worf as Worf, an individual, rather than because they know him and love him from TNG, rather than Worf as like a series of identities that he was created to hold. Yes. And you could see like actively the, the choices like on TNG when he was introduced that they made like they were clearly political SJW choices. They were mm-hmm. they were there to poke at the to poke at what was uncomfortable. Um, I think like for example, like, I feel like Schitt's Creek, for example, which is this amazing show. It's also very Jewish, but like the mm-hmm. way that they all place like pansexuality in and not make it like about that, but just like in passing in the background and this and that. Like there's there there wait, obviously wait, a Schitt's choice. Creek isn't about. Pansexuality, like that's not what the whole show is about. Exactly, exactly. No, no, I, you and I have clearly watched different shows, but that's fine. <laughs> oh, no, no, I'm not saying it. I'm saying the opposite. It's absolutely not about it. It's in the background, but the choice of putting it in the background was a political choice. And I'm I don't think it's Worf... not in the background at all. But oh, really? That's fine. <laughs> I guess yeah. I guess that's yeah. Like from the point of why Sarah's watching it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's I the mean, reason I was told to watch it. It's probably not the reason I stuck around, but. Mm. Yeah, I would I I would differ from you there, but this is not our Shit's Creek podcast. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so like, I mean, f- was it did his Russianness matter to you as like one of the Russians on TV, or was it just simply him being an outsider, al- you know, um, outsider like alien character who's oh, the nevertheless embraced? Really, yeah, the Russianness mattered, especially to me at that age. Where um, in my older age, where uh, the Russianness was very critical to my um, development because it was targeted because it's attached to my name, right? So it's OV. Right. So I was just like this confusing thing to people, like, why do you have a Spanish name? And then I explained it's a Hebrew name that Spanish, you know, <laughs> Latinos like. And then, yep. um, and then in terms of the last name, that also got me like in the middle of you know, a school in the projects where uh, 20% of the kids were Afghan refugees um, who were scarred by another war, the Soviet war in Afghanistan. And um, when they saw the last name, like that triggered them, that created a lot of like problems um, that had to be (laughs) resolved (laughs) or not. And, um, and then, you know, uh, I had a grade school teacher, sixth grade. I moved to, to schools, um, and and this teacher was beloved by the community. His name was Mr. DeMeo, and super liberal. Like a lot of our parents didn't consent to sexual education, and he tore up those papers and said, "You know, I'm going to teach all of you about sex ed. Damn. I don't care what your parents say, and if they have a problem, like they can come visit me." And this guy was, you know, his hands were the size of my head. He was like the most <laughs> macho guy you can imagine. No one's going to confront him about that. So, um, but because someone so popular and charismatic like him 
kind of himself, my last name triggered um, him, where my first day of school, I would, uh, you know, I, I immediately like <laughs> saw this pretty person and I was like, wow, like, look at that. I hope I hope they notice me. And um, and then he made sure everyone noticed me by bringing me up to the front of the board and telling and like personifying me as the Soviet Union, even though we fled the Soviet Union and then telling his childhood story about having to hide from nuclear, you know, attack uh, because of me. And he would use my name. Jesus. And he would he would have the children go under the tables in this exercise, except me and like re and like you know, kind of role play what he had to go through because of Raphael. And, right. and he would always talk to about me through my last name only, like Shimonov. And, um, and that ended that, that, that prospect of that relationship and everything became very uh, tense there. So yeah, for me seeing, uh, I'm not even Russian, but seeing a yeah. Russian, uh, seeing something change the culture and pick at it, about and normalizing Russians um, actually was really powerful uh, for me, even though <laughs> even though we ran away from from that. Yeah, um, and what's fascinating about Worf being Russian on the Next Generation is it creates this continuity with the original series, where one of the big things was there's a Russian guy on the bridge, there's Chekhov, and then there was sort of like, don't quote me on this, but I swear I saw an interview with Gene Roddenberry somewhere talking about how putting a Klingon on the bridge in Next Generation was the same kind of move where they mm-hmm. wanted Worf to be visible as sort of like somebody who would be surprising internally within like sort of our knowledge of Star Trek the way it would have been surprising in the 60s to see a Russian and a black woman on the bridge. Um, so, um, and then making him Russian is that just sort of a continuity with that where like here we have a Russian on the bridge again, but he looks a little different. Yeah. I, I mean, I, you know, and I think by the time it's DS9 that that's changed in some ways and how much that they sent, like every DS9 is so much about Worf being a, a Klingon and that part of his identity, um, it's, I mean, how, how does Worf change, how does Worf change DS9 when he arrives? And how does, like, the space station and social dynamics in the universe of the show, um, and does DS, does being on DS9 change Worf? I know, like, a lot of my friends who are Orthodox or were Orthodox also find commonality with Worf. And I find that Worf's evolution is really tied to um, being this like straight race, straight laced like rule follower, right? As you said, um, in the beginning, um, really tense, and then I think evolving towards like, uh, <laughs> like um, t- to not be right, to be kind of rebellious in almost every mm-hmm. aspect. Um, yet you know, holding on to his values strongly, but really, really just uh, claiming ground for himself. Um, and he does it in a way that a lot of like orthodox Jewish friends of mine have done it where they use the skills like they use the the, the critical thinking like um, critique skills and the analysis skills and then they turn it on their own their own teachings and their own teachers 
Uh, so they, there's still this basis and just like watching him transform also reminds me of that. So I feel like Worf, it's almost like Bajorans where it's such a apt, like um, it's such a flexible and universal kind of um, mode, right? That a, a Palestinian can see themselves there mm-hmm. and a Jew can see themselves there and, uh, you know, and, and, so many different people can place themselves uh, and for different reasons in so many of these characters that it's just like, it's just mind boggling how, how wonderful that is and how this, this universe just is able to mutate in, in all of our, in all of our psyches. And I do think Worf has a very different place within the community on deep space nine than he did on the next generation because on the enterprise like he's a very good fit it's all of these people that are like the kind of people who get to work on the flagship whereas in deep space nine he shows up and he's all mr regulations and everybody else is like yeah we're here like between a wormhole and bajor and like sometimes the rules just get bent because none of that really works on a practical day-to-day basis. And a lot of the tension, and I would argue that it really is all the way through, that he that even though he adapts, he's still always the most rule-bound one there. Um, that he comes in and it's one of the things that's hard for him is that the rules really don't apply in the same way. And it's so interesting to connect that back with his Klingon identity because so much of the stories are about him being his role at Star Trek and his, and his wanting and his viewing, he views himself as like the most Klingon Klingon and the Klingons (laughs) don't see him that way because he's in Star, he's in Starfleet, but he thinks himself as the embodiment of like, the mo- he wants to be the most Klingon that you can possibly be, and that's you know, he and he, and that's like the so much of the conflict that he has here. Um, but I also just think the way he shows up on the show, like there's this, his hair is nerdy on Star Trek, and his hair is much more relaxed and at peace with itself when he shows up in DS Nine. Like he's he's less awkward, even though he's an awkward fit. He as an individual is less awkward and more, a little bit more self-confident, I think, by the time he shows up, even though he says like, oh, I don't know what I'm here for. I don't know what I'm looking for yet. I'm like, he feels like he's grown nonetheless to me. Yeah, I, I, even I, I, just thinking about it now, I remember my, how my dad identified with him as well. Like, like mm-hmm. in, when DS9 started, uh, we were a lot older and, you know, and my dad would actually told me the story while we were watching DS9 and it was... When Worf was introduced to DS9, I think Cisco's quote was something like, "You know, we need a we need a Klingon to deal with Klingons." Yes, and, yes. Right? and my dad that opened my dad up to the story where he told me the first time when he came to the U.S. to New York, um, the Reagan administration then had him go to this hotel. Like they just told him, "You must attend this hotel. Go to this floor." The whole floor was just like State Department. Everyone spoke Russian. They weren't Russian. They were Americans. And uh, everyone spoke Russian to him. And they basically produced in front of him, like he was in the Air Force. So they, they produced in front of him 
like maps of their barracks and their yeah. <laughs> landing pads and this and that and then like tested him to see if he would lie to them then try to get intelligence out of him yeah and all of these things and he you know like just watching we couldn't even pause star trek back then and just watching it and constantly interrupting each other with how Worf relates to each each of us um is just like profound and i really didn't really um think about it from my dad's lens until really right now that's wild i'm you know but i i also think like you mentioned like some of the parental relationship between him and alexander which i know is so important to you know to 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 to, to his character in ds9 and and you know in tng as well yeah there's this aspect i think i examine a lot and that is this having come here without the enclave, having come here without the cultural um, scaffolding of, of all of that, I did feel like, and I still do, largely insecure about the culture. And um, and I can't think of a, a more insecure way like than uh, depicted as when Worf really like tries to kind of raise a son <laughs> and tries to kind of like, not just even his son, but like when he's, stuck on X planet. I forget which episode this was, but he was on this planet of um, Klingon Alien survivors. Yeah, he like adopts a lot of kids and attempts yeah. to adopt a lot of kids. Yeah, and, and, and like, it never really like, comes through. And he, he, he sometimes often like overcompensating because of that insecurity, but also really like a true believer and like really trying to push it ahead. And um, I feel like that's how we reacted a lot too until, you know, more of us came um, and then we were still outsiders. Like the the way that people address Worf, the Klingon Klingons address Worf is very similar to how. And it's also like it doesn't. It actually helps a lot that our language is actually Bukhari that we speak actually sounds like Klingon. And and I used to joke as a kid that my dad spoke Klingon. Like you know, and then people believed me because he would call me inside from outside in in Buharian. And it would sound like Klingon to people. <laughs> you get, 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 give us at least one. Give us a line. Oh, <laughs> so like, um, so this is this is great. Uh, Bukharian young man who helps uh, like translate. He's like one of the like. There's no more really Bukharian speakers. There's very few. I think in '95 there was like less than a hundred thousand, and now it's probably like a third of that in the world who can understand and speak the language. However. Um, we all repeat certain things that are just like part of it. And, and mm -hmm. so, so like, yeah, I, I do have a list of some examples. So like this guy, Bobby, Bobby Isaacov, he's Buharian young man and he helps like translate these things. So I pulled this from a list that he created once for a group of Buharians. Um, and there's like, you know, there's like the very negative stuff you could say, but even when it's positive, like it just sounds really negative. So like, uh, there's one phrase that we always hear in our families, Kai Muram. And that basically it's like, when am I going to die? Like it's a very <laughs> angsty, you know. Then there is Alvodat Gir Shavat, which means may your family perish and disappear, right? <laughs> but like the, the really like the really funny part, like of you know, like like oh, there's the one with the, this is this means may your nose fall off. Abinet uh, Zada Borod, right? And um, and it's funny because I think like one of the preeminent insults in Klingon is patach, and you really look it up, and it just means weirdo. You know what I mean? This one just means may your nose fall off. But then even in the 
even in the most positive ones, like the blessings, they sound uh, like really angry. King Klingon, Klingon, and I'm sorry, I apologize to fellow Boreans. And I do learn later a secret where it's actually more about the tribe I'm from and like how we speak versus Buharians because our language is actually Judeo-Persian Tajik dialect, which is actually very soft and beautiful. Like it's like poetry. But there's something about when my family says these words and I realize, oh, it's not Buharians, it's probably my tribe. And, and when I ask like, so what is our tribe known for? Like no one would ever tell me until I got older. And my mom was, my grandma told me and she was just like, oh, we're, we're, um, we're known for eating meat, uh, having lots of babies and being loud, <laughs> right? Like, I'm like, oh, great, you know. Um, so it might happen. It might happen to do more with like my family than than anything. So like, here's <laughs> here's some examples of like really like the blessings and how they sound and how my family would say them. One thing is like when you're offered food and you don't accept it, it's like a big insult, and they would say, "Adasimagir," and that means please take from my hand. It's like the kindest thing to say. Um, uh, there's uh, there's one as bini, and that means may your children see good things. Like I could go on forever, and these it, 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 uh, these phrases are just like there's you know it, it, you could tell a lot in cultures of like what they what they're saying a lot because there's so many words for one. There's one phrase which is a blessing, but it's dark that has like seventy words for it that you could use, and one of them is muramata. And basically it means, may I die instead of you. You know, like if, 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 if the universe decides to take, or if God decides to take you, may he reconsider and take me instead. And there's oh like 20 gosh. versions of that phrase and they all sound um, Klingon. So there's just it. like so many levels in which <laughs> this like sandwich, like that, 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 uh, that he became this like assembly of Buharianisms <laughs> for me. Uh, yeah, well, I think there's that's fascinating that's too because I've often heard that there's a lot of similarity between Klingon and Yiddish as well. Um, and the linguist who created Klingon, uh, this was like furious googling in the background. Um, Mark Ockrand um, is Jewish, is um, of Eastern European Jewish descent, and took a lot of the phonemes, the sounds from what was familiar to him from hearing Yiddish mm -hmm. as well. So there's something that's just sort of inherently, I think, Jewish about the way Klingon sounds and feels. And I think of things like, I know, like five words in Klingon, but one of them is that the word for tribble is yich. <laughs> that is so <laughs> good. <Yeah. laughs> Which could not sound more Yiddish to me, but when you're using all the those Bukharian phrases, I'm thinking, yeah, it has that feel to it too, and I mean, that there's just pie. something about oh, those sort of um, Jewish dialects that seems to be carried through in the way that Ukran constructed Klingon. Absolutely, and then just join that with all of our military victory holidays, and you really, you really mm. drive it home. And it makes me think of my how much I love I, mean, I love the Klingons that we have who are not soldiers like the Klingon chef and the Klingon lawyer are like my my two favorite other Klingons. There's also like a Klingon. There's a there's a couple of notable Klingon scientists on TNG and they're there's one in particular that's a warp scientist. And there's just yeah, there's something really charming about 
people who are still very Klingon, but are like not warriors. I mean, I, I one of the things I do love about DS9 is like you really do see that there are some wonderful things in Klingon culture. Um, meanwhile, I'm, I'm always screaming at my TV whenever the Cardassians do anything. It's like, Cardassians, your entire culture is trash. Nothing. There is no redeeming qualities whatsoever. And like, I think that um, it's important. It's so important that Star Trek has like these good and endearing and like positive things with Klingon culture that we see in DS9. And, um, you know, when we start to see the drama and the conflict between the Federation and the and the Klingon Empire, I was so upset because I was like, but it's so important for me that the Klingons and the, the you know, and, and, and the Federation, like, not be enemies. Like, this is, that was, I mean, I, I and I'm, I, in the end, I'm, I think the storyline was great. I, I have no, I, I have no complaints about it. But like, it was hard for me to see that rupture, you know, because um, that mattered a lot. Uh so, I, you know, one of the questions, I hope, Sarah, I hope you don't mind if I, if I jump to this, because this is a question from your fiance. Um, yes. Is Worf a cultural fetishist when it comes to Klingon culture? Is this why he's such an outsider? Like, is he trying to be more Klingon than Klingons because yeah. he didn't grow up within the culture in the same way that pretty much all, all other Klingons did? I mean, that is a diaspora kind of constant, right? If you look across reality, like oftentimes <laughs> um, that does occur. I, I don't know. I don't, I don't feel it. I feel like he, I feel like he really champions it in a genuine way. And it could be driven from insecurity, but what culture and religion <laughs> really, you know, uh, that coexisted with war and, and things like that and famines and things isn't right. Mm. Yeah. I think a lot of what Amy perceives as cultural fetishism, I think kind of arises from just the intersection between Worf's personality and his desire to connect with Klingon culture. So he's by nature, somebody who likes to follow, to have a lot of rules and structures to follow. So he goes and he finds all of the rules of Klingon culture and he follows them and he finds that really comforting. Whereas you get somebody like Martok, who's a little looser and a little more fun and, or certainly Dax, who is a fan of Klingon culture in a very different way where they tend to bring out sort of the drinking and the parties and the joy. And those are all parts of the culture. Um, and the fact mm -hmm. that different people are able to find a connection to different parts of that very rich culture within sort of the Star Trek universe, I think points to how well the world building and the sort of anthropological sci-fi building goes when it comes to Klingons. There was a whole thread that I cannot find years ago where someone was making the case that Worf was really Russian and not Klingon and that like he's trying to be Klingon, but like it's projection of his idea of what it means to be Klingon and it's not rooted in the reality of what Klingons are at that moment in history and that so many of the things that he views as being Klingon are actually like Russian. Um, and I cannot find that thread and it blew my mind. Yeah. I wonder though, like if that's us forcing 
kind of a lens on it because of, you know, how people talk about humans. And, you know, we're all like actually the same species, right? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. In, the, in the case of like Star Trek, a lot of the characters are not. So like, you know, Worf does physically have a sense of smell that that energizes him for the hunt <laughs> and tracking and all of these things. And there are point. like aspects to him. Uh, that are Klingon and you can't argue them out really and say he's just Russian just because, you know what I mean? Like there's just so much um, that's built in and it's not true with humans to humans, mm. but it's definitely true across like the Star Trek universe. Yeah, I'll buy it. Um, uh, I think that, yeah, and it's like on the, uh, first of all, like you can be more than one thing. He can be Russian and Klingon at the same time. <laughs> And it's also, I'm thinking about, like, and it's one of this is where I'd want to talk to somebody with this lived experience more directly, but thinking about the experiences of um, people living in North America adopted by usually white parents who are adopted from East Asia or from Latin America, and where they are, you know, very clearly product of the culture they were raised in, but they look how they look. And the way they look does often differentiate them within their communities, no matter how much their cultural background is the same as all of their neighbors. Hmm. I um it sort of reminded me of my favorite listener question. No offense, but my favorite listener question that we got sent mm-hmm. in from um Elisa Shavinsky. Um she asked uh she'd be interested in Worf's insights on Worf as a BT, which is stands for Baal Teshuva, meaning roughly uh you know, someone who was very strict in their interpretation of Jewish law and um eventually you know, um, like changed that, um, uh, to, uh, sorry, saying, so Raphael's insights on Worf as a BT in so much as his relationship to Klingon culture is arguably similar to the BTs to Orthodox culture. This was, um, yeah, I thought that was really interesting. There is this question like, identity piece that, um, for me, as like Mizrahi Jew, who's like Jews of Central Asia and North Africa, who like through the American lens and definitely through the Star Trek lens, um, Jews are very European and Ashkenazi. And a lot of the things that people attribute to Worf and and his parents and and uh, you know Leonard Nimoy and all these things are very European hmm. Jewish. Yeah. Uh, but in in Worf's case in particular, to me, to our culture, he was actually closer to Jewish as a Klingon <laughs> to us because mm-hmm. like, for example, um, like, for example, like prune juice, <laughs> which is like a topic that's always, you know, haunting him. Uh, and I think from the Ashkenazi lens, it's like, okay, another Jew with IBS issues, you know, needs a little help <laughs> from the, from the Bukharian view. It juxtaposes nicely with like our very kind of extremely macho culture of like furry men who sit down and have, tea from tiny little teacups and porcelain tea kettles together uh yelling and arguing and but also like holding hands and kissing each other on the cheek and and really you know again speaking speaking lingon and um so to us like uh, a lot of the the 
the jokes about um, Jewish identity and the tropes of Jewish identity are kind of like, um, you know, more of like curb your enthusiasm versus like, mm -hmm. you know, it's like uh, macho quote unquote guy and and uh, a woman at home doing, you know, just, you know, cooking and <laughs> and having these like old traditional uh, roles yeah. and, and this and that. So like even that was a culture clash when Buharians went to Israel and here to New York where, um, you know, I, I think there's this famous scene where and she she actually mistakens it. But like the Fran meets like one of us, like a Mizrahi Jew. And of course, it's always conflated with Sephardi too. And she right. goes, oh, what are you, Sephardi? And it's like this exotic Jew, you know what I mean? Like this other yeah. exotic Jew that has all this other different kind of traits that are, um, I, I think, complementary, right? So um, mm -hmm. yeah, so there was this other thing at play for me where he was even more Jewish to me than Leonard, than, than Spock. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely Ashkenormative, a word I have learned fairly recently, tendencies in um, how pop culture at large, you know, displays like Jewish identity in media. And it's interesting also just because like, I mean, I don't want to get completely sidetracked into a conversation about how Judaism actual like is handled in the series. But, um, you know, I... <sighs> except I guess I'm about to, like, you know, I grew up unaware of some of the negative Jewish stereotypes. Um, and so, like, somebody had to tell me at a certain point, like, that Jews were supposed to be greedy. I was like, I thought we were communists and anti-American. <laughs> I didn't know we were greedy. And so then having people be like, oh, like, well, look, the Ferengi are an anti-Jewish stereotype and me being like, I, I was unaware of this. Um, I didn't know that people thought that about us because I thought we were all communists and like worked in the entertainment industry. Um, like I, you know, like I, I had positive stereotypes as I saw them rather than negative stereotypes as I would interpret them. Um, but and, and yet all of that is very Ashkenormative in in how it's how it's portrayed on the show. And yeah, like Leonard Nimoy, like, you know, or Eastern European Jews. That's like, what's up? Um, I I think but I think like. You know, I, I think I think one of her questions, though, is like, is he going through a journey of being more orthodox when he starts and then becoming more integrated and like less strict to the letter of the text over the course of the show? And certainly in the wedding episodes, which I freaking love, you do see him having to like the struggle of like being more flexible or more rigid in the celebration of the wedding. I mean, one thing I do love is that. Worf is like the wedding princess where like he's like my wedding I have been dreaming about it my whole life and it has to be like this this and this and I love Dax is like yeah I've had a lot of weddings so I'm gonna let him be the wedding princess and I'm like thank you uh because let's not gender this like you don't have to be a, a, a girl to be the wedding princess right um I shouldn't even be gendering it like that but like folks know what I mean when I say that he's the groomsman. <laughs> he's the he's the groomzilla yes. yes but his you know but his groomzilla ing is about fidelity to klingon tradition um yeah yeah and I, I i i love the wedding but i also like i find like the wedding ceremony itself like meaningful like the two klingon hearts that cannot are so powerful together they can't even be stopped by god i'm like this is like Somebody could like totally legitimately do that at their wedding ceremony and I would be 100% there for it. And even if you didn't tell me it was from Star Trek, you know. Um, 
yeah. then beating people up who've made you fast for a while, I think, is also are you, Are you trying to tell me that, like, we should go call our officiant and say, hey, you know, we didn't say we were going to have a Klingon wedding, but, you know, maybe. Um, but it's too late. <laughs> it's not too late. We are now. That, yeah. Right, that's true. It's not too late. It's it's not too late. We have, we have three months to, you know, mess with our wedding. Um, yeah, anyway. Um, yeah. Uh, I feel like one of the difficulties with Deep Space Nine's depiction of Worf is that there is less character continuity for him than there is for some of the other characters. And so he'll seem very open and very culturally relative and very like, this is how my Klingon identity fits into my larger sense of, you know, Starfleet and all that. And then the next episode, he'll be like, you know, very, you know, like, like participating in a terrorist action to destroy a vacation planet because people are being slutty. Um, <laughs> I know. Oh my God. We all pretend the episode yeah. doesn't exist, but it exists. Um, it doesn't. <laughs> that, like, I think it's hard to answer that question because I don't think there's a, le- a linear movement for him from mm. being very rule bound and traditional toward being, you know, liberated and relativist. And I feel like, honestly, that's more realistic in a lot of ways that you'll see somebody and you'll feel like, well, this person is seeing their relationship with their culture, their religion in a much more um, relativist way. And then the next week they say something and you're like, you know, people don't change overnight. It's not a wholesale movement and maybe it shouldn't be. And maybe we just accept that like Worf has that in him and it's always going to be a tension within him rather than something where he moves from point A to point B. Hmm. That's also believable for how people are too, right? That's my point is, yeah. And maybe we shouldn't be like saying, well, we need this character arc where Worf starts out like a very rule bound traditionalist Klingon and his arc is toward liberation from that. Maybe like, and this is very consistent with, I think deep space nine overall, what we want is to just let Worf be Worf. If war, if that's what makes Worf happy, like the only time it's a problem is when it's hurting somebody like it did in the Ryza episode where it was hurting dads. Um, Mm -hmm. Like, if that rule following is what gives him comfort and gives him meaning, like, that's great. That's part of diversity. That's part of why we like him. Speaking of why we like Worf, Worf gets the hot chicks. Um, All of them. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Every, yeah. every series. As much as he's into being Klingon, he has diverse <laughs> taste in women, not just Klingon women. Um, even though he does get Cyrano de Bergerac to like get with Dax. Um, it, I guess this leads me to an important Twitter question we've received, uh, which was, does war fuck was the question. <laughs> and I, I'm like, how, how dare you ask me that? Obviously, war, I took it very literally. I'm like, Worf obviously fucks because we see that oh, yeah. in yeah. episodes. But, um, but, th- there's the, but th- there's the internet meme. Um, so I guess the question would be like, let's think of reflecting on Worf's uh, omnivorous taste in women and also to what extent does Worf fuck? 
oh he he's definitely the word is out like he's he's down i mean look at his track record he he has he he gets Kalar, he gets Deanna Troy, he gets Jadzia Dax. Um Mirror Wharf has to turn Mirror Garrick down, which, you know, that itself takes some courage. Um mm-hmm. <laughs> like Wharf fucks and again Esri, that's one of the delightful which, like, things about his character is like he gets the women. I like liked I liked the whole plot with him and Esri. I liked that they had hooked up and got it out of their systems and were done with it. Like that made me happy. Yes, one of one of the many moments of Deep Space Nine having a um, mature and nuanced attitude toward like different kinds of emotional and sexual relationships that people can people can have. The sort of like mm-hmm. a relationship doesn't have to like last forever to be successful. That was a very successful processing of that emotional and sexual relationship yeah yeah and it only takes one person to accumulate i don't know five lifetimes <laughs> to, to be able to help pull it off that's a good point um yeah i know i i i, I do think it's interesting that like he requires getting serenode to like really take Dex seriously as a potential when like literally every single person in the entire spaceship Space for it. on the entire space station other than him would be like is Dax even slightly looking at me <laughs> yes my life has meaning um it was kind of uncomfortable how much uh it was just like every other episode was like the the male gaze like for Dax everywhere like by by so many characters I don't think it would fly these days it was just like too much no it didn't really we fly definitely talked then about that. it was like, I remember yeah. watching it and being like, really? Really? <laughs> and listeners, listen to episode three, where Sarah and I talk about the particularly 90s nature of feminism as conveyed on DS9. Um, but like, I think, but, you know, Worf coming and like giving, like Worf's coming to the series was really great for Dax's character because, you know, as as Terry Farrell says, like it gave her the space to become quote unquote action Barbie. Like she got to become they got to really delve into her knowledge of the Klingon culture, her Klingon fandom and her like martial arts interests, which we wouldn't have really have had as much of a reason to get into through then. I mean, and Worf really does like we know he was added to DS9 for the purposes of like bringing some more attention to the series. But he does really invite with him some awesome Klingon plots. Like, who doesn't love, you know, Martok and Galron and all of them are such a blast. I think the one klingon plot that he really has that I feel like is really divisive is his son. I think his relationship with Alexander and Alexander existing on the show and all of that is, like, really divisive between the fans. Yeah, I think I, there is this, like, recurring thing. He's just not really overall there as like a dad right um yeah through the story but a lot of them aren't um no there's uh, there's like <laughs> recurring memes about how Worf is the worst father on star trek so there are some fraught and troubled parent-child relationships but like Worf is usually singled out as being like i will just send you away to live with your grandparents because i can't deal with you 
But I love that when his son shows up, he's like, fuck, you know, I was he was being busy being a disappointment to me for being inadequately Klingon. And I was like, well, that's okay. We're just you're just going to be regarded as a human and you can go do human things with your human grandparents. Then he's like, oh, now that my son actually wants to be part of active Klingon culture, he's doing it badly and he's shaming me like there's no there's no pleasing Worf. And it's like, well, you didn't raise him. So, you know, how did you think this was going to go? He's also got this, like, traumatized little kid who just sort of throws him into school and he, like, he doesn't know what to do with him and has no support, which is too bad. Um, Again, like, you'd think by the 24th century they would have, um, like, uh, individually tailored child supportive, you know, trauma-informed structures to help, you know, this really confused little kid who's dealing with the loss of his mother. But apparently, like, they do not. I, I understand the show not wanting to saddle him with having to have a young child on the show. But, like, when he comes back and he's a teenager, I mean, like, there's just there was too much for the show to do to really do more with Alexander. But, like, if the show had endless seasons, I would not have minded seeing that get expanded on, I guess, is what I would say. Like, I know why they didn't expand on it, but I think that there's a rich story that there could be with that. Well, there is. He is a young child on, ne- on Next Generation. He's, like, six. Right. Like, he's a little But kid. he's not, like, there that much. Yeah. He's there. Right? He's, not- he's there enough. Mm-hmm. He's there. I think he makes like six or seven appearances. He gets to sit in a mud bath with Waxana Troy. Um, I mean, hashtag goals, but you know, whatever. Yeah, um, exactly. That's got to um, be awkward for a, for a child. I don't. My brain is just like, I don't know how to process this information. Um, right nobody now. has been able to um, process that episode. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, it, it's that. Yeah, that's one of the. Uh, don't watch this one sober kind of episodes of next generation. But um, yeah, no, there's a lot of time jumping in how they depict Alexander where he's a little kid on next generation. And then you don't see him again until deep space nine. And he's aged a good 10 years from when you last saw him in what in real time would have been much less than that. If they'd aged him, Mm-hmm. The way they aged like Molly O'Brien, when you saw him on Deep Space Nine, he would have been maybe like 12 at most. Any other thoughts on Worf's relationship with his son, Roth? Or we can move on. I always wonder, like, sometimes if I ascribe too much to, like, the story versus, like, hey, they, you know, the, he didn't do well on the ratings, so they kind of, like, toned him down after a while. Like, how much of our, you know, how much of my analysis of things are are really about, like, the commercial aspects of behind the scenes. Hmm. I mean, yeah. I definitely, like, the commercial, commercial like, is why, you know, Worf ends up on DS9, but, like, it really did so much good stuff for the show and for Worf. Um, and not just the new hairstyle, but it did help. Um, although I guess I should say, like, you know, none... Well, one of us is a Jew of color. None of us are black. Um, I do think that, like, it's interesting. So, you know, we don't really see Michael Dorn addressed as being a black person until he's present in Somewhere Beyond the Stars, which is, you know, that alternate episode where Cisco is writing science fiction in the 20th century. 
Yeah, and then we see Michael Dorn without the makeup, and he's visible as a black actor in a way that I think a lot of people who watched the shows might not have even realized that Michael Dorn was black until he appeared out of makeup in that episode. If they didn't, you know, read magazines or, Mm -hmm. you know, go to conventions, they might not have known that. Yeah, since they're doing so much brown face on the other Klingons, like... So awful. Why? Why? Um, I yeah. But I, I, so I'm glad. I'm really glad. I mean, that episode. I'm really glad it exists for all kinds of reasons, including the fact that it's fucking amazing. But I, I actually do also think it's particularly important that they had a moment where you're like, Michael Dorn is black, like, and that informs, I think, or should inform at least some people's like understanding of the performance. I think and the character. I mean, because there's a question like, what does it say if like you're saying that Klingons are like, oh, they're savage and we're going to have a black actor play a Klingon. And it's like, yeah, but the Klingons, they're not just savage. Like, and there are all kinds of different people playing Klingon actors. And Worf is like the most sort of staid and dignified. Like, I, you know what I mean? Like, I can see somebody going and trying to make a case that, that that's fucked up. But I'm like, I don't think the text upholds that. You know, the problem is the brown face. That's that the problem. <laughs> There's that Cold War parallel, too, where during the the, the tipping point of, of the Cold War, Russians were depicted as this, like, one-dimensional, you know, uh, warlike people. And, you know, uh, and and later, as the Cold War kind of warmed up, um, the other dimensions were added, like, even in, like, Rocky by then um there was like Mm. other three-dimensionality added to it and i feel like that's that also happened with klingons uh and then there also there was that war and it just like uh was very familiar uh looking in, in, in the timing of that i feel like there's always been kind of a tense relationship with between star trek doing as much as it can to cast diversity not always succeeding but i remember when um tim russ was announced as playing tuvok on voyager one of my like friends in high school went into this long rant about how like vulcan biology made it impossible to have black vulcans and i'm just like sitting there on the school bus being like do you hear yourself um so i think that as much as it is frustrating that Michael Doran isn't really visible as a black actor in the way that we might like him to be, just the fact that Star Trek was willing to say, you know, there's visible diversity among aliens and we're never gonna, you know, say that such and such an alien race must be cast with um, actors of one background or another, like there's limitations to that approach. And there's, you know, the brown face problem that gets built into that and things like that. But at the same time, like one of the really radical things about the casting of Next Generation was in addition to having 
a very visible black actor in LeVar Burton just sort of saying, you know, Michael Dorn is this character. We're putting him in this role. Also weird side note, but like amazing side note. Uh, There's a group called the Vulcan Society in New York City, which is like a fraternal um, organization of black firefighters. And they, Mm -hmm. I only know really because uh, they really rose to prominence um, uh, in recent years because they sued the FDNY for just openly excluding black firefighters um, and making sure like, you know, only their family, their like Irish and Italian families that kind of made yep. it through the yep. process. And they actually um, uh, are called the Vulcan Society. And I just thought it was just like when you said Vulcans can't be black because of X, Y, Z, your friend said that immediately. I just thought of this weird New York City fact that I just had to share. Which is funny also because like, Vulc- I mean, you know, it's Vulcan because of the fire. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's really cool. And I think it's I sort of it. look at, you know, two sides of the same issue of like, um, of representation just being important from any angle, even if, and, you know, say, well, if it's imperfect representation from the past, it's a way to talk about how to do it better now, not something that we should dismiss because it was imperfect at the time. At the time. Yeah. I, and I, you know, I, I love that, like, the final, at the end of the series, the top Cardassian you see is played by a Black actor, um, like, after Damar has switched sides, like, the, the guy who's left standing. I'm like, see, thank you, you cast a Black actor as, like, a random alien species and put him in random face paint, you know? Um, uh, so one of the things that really stuck with me is, uh, at the very end of DS9... You know, the end of the series shows it's not like um, a happily ever after ending. It's, you know, it gives people lots of different potential plots and storylines for the future. And in the end of it, we see Worf become a Federation ambassador to the Klingon Empire. Uh, Ralph, what do you think of that as a role for, for, for Worf? Is that a good place for him to be? Will he like that? Will he succeed? It was so boring. It's like when my friends become, my activist friends become executive directors. <laughs> I'm just like, no, 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 come back, come back, no. Yeah, I, I, I shared your disappointment. I was like, I don't think he's going to like that at all. I think he's not going to like that. Yeah, it made me sad. What, what do you think? going to make captain. Yeah, that too, awesome good point. Captain. Well, I mean, even Cisco says so, right? When disciplining him for like in the in the unfrozen Klingon lawyer episode, he still says you're going to make one hell of a captain someday. <laughs> Which is the name of that episode? It's it's possibly my favorite Worf episode on Deep Space Nine. And didn't yeah, do, didn't he do something there where Cisco then said that you could probably never be captain after that? I forget what it was. Yeah, except Ooh, that maybe he didn't do it. Like it turned out that it that the it was a Klingon frame job, right? Oh, you mean in that episode? He said oh, that. Okay, right, 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 right. Um, yeah, I, I like what, what, what do you think would have be a happier ending for for Worf at the end of DS Nine? He gets promoted to full commander and gets. You know what? Honestly. Cisco's gone. Put him in charge of Deep Space Nine. Wow. Yeah. 
Yeah. I would like to subscribe to your newsletter. Um, I believe you I do believe subscribe you to my newsletter. It's called my, my 2 a.m. texts. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's that's true. I um, mean, if if there was another way, like a device to kind of poetically, I know Worf kind of hobbled, <laughs> cobbled back together, like his prestige among other Klingons. But if there was a way to for him to have like that final like being the ultimate Klingon to 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 Klingon normies at some point that would have hmm. been interesting to me but maybe maybe it was cooler this way but definitely seeing him as a commander of the station or a ship uh would have been amazing yeah like he's so starfleet suits him in a really fundamental way and i think that that's one of the things that the character continually comes back to that as much as he loves being a Klingon, he's very deliberately made the choice to be in Starfleet and he loves being in Starfleet and he's proud. So taking that away Sarah, from him do you want to ask? Awful. What, sorry? Yeah. yeah. Especially to go and like serve in a place that doesn't really appreciate him enough, in my opinion. Um, although Martok does. But I love Martok. But also, Martok he's not exactly Mister Persuasion. Like, it's not like as an ambassador, oh, yeah. like he's in the behind the scenes, like being persuasive uh, or anything. It's just like that's not in his skill set. Yeah, he's a strategic like, thinker. Suit. He's a tactician. He's mm-hmm. like a you know a, a romantic <laughs> and all and. Uh, uh, even like I would say he's one of the most poetic people in the thing. I could never see him like yes. kissing ass and doing the things that an ambassador does. Yeah, that's yeah. a really good point. He's just not cut out for it. Who wants to be? <laughs> I mean, you know, I I would love like I feel like being in a like if Ilano existed in Star Trek land, I would be like really interested in being an ambassador, but that's not Worf. We are we are very different, Worf and I. Um so I mean, do you have any favorite Worf story arcs in general? I think that yeah, I think like we touched on it mostly with the the parent arc, but to me his his constant challenge of being excluded and re included into the fringes of of uh of Klingon society um and mm. different houses and just like how how um it was just really powerful how it kind of showed how transactional it could be and how your status could change in like overnight um and very much like again I don't want to make it I know it's Rosh Hashanah and it's today is actually Star Trek Day and all these two things together, but and the 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 issue is like Worf as a Jew of color, but generally speaking, like it does remind me too of like the um, temporary basis of like uh, Jewish privilege, uh, especially to Jews of color, where um, depending on your last action, you're you're immediately decided if you're Jewish or not, or you're immediately questioned if you're Jewish or, or not, unlike anyone, uh, other Jews. Like there are, Noam Chomsky is never questioned for being Jewish or not, but uh, if a Jew of color espouses anything, let's say similar to Noam Chomsky, uh, they're immediately put into question their Judaism. So that to me, as a Jew of color, um, I experience and I see another parallel there for him and how 
um, how fleeting his identity is depending on the world around him. Yeah. You know, for those who don't spend too much time online and who are white, um, like the extent to which like right wing white Jews spend their time on Twitter, like harassing Jews of color and claiming that they're not really Jewish is astonishing. Like, I swear, one of the biggest projects of right wing white Jews in America is to claim that Jews of color are lying and not really Jewish. It's like sociopathy. There's like literally little Twitter accounts that just exist to say this to people. Yep. Yeah, they'll do the whole background. They'll dox you. Um, I've had like my family tree posted and like put into question my friends have. Uh, it's pretty wild. And then there is also in the in the center space as well, like there's um, a blind spot there, you know, with a, in particular with black Jews and uh, the friction between white Jewish society and uh, black Jews um, in the fold because, you know, like right now we're talking about Jewish safety with white supremacists, like, you know, trying to hurt Jews in synagogues and other places. And then, um, you know, the reaction of like, oh, more cops, more guns, more, more, more police, more prosecutions, more hate crime laws. And like without much, you know, and when black Jews are speaking up even offline about how that puts them in, in more danger again, you know, suddenly the question of their Jewishness comes up again. Yeah. Um, that brings me to one of the quest- one of the last questions we had, which is that there's a really powerful parallel between Worf's experience and Odo's experience, partially because they have kind of similar personalities in a way that's fun and they become friends, but partially just because they have in common that they're both like the lone representative of a species that is seen as the bad guy as the enemy whereas culturally they're sort of between that and Odo probably much more thoroughly than Worf like was raised on Bajor like um this is for the Odo episode but like presumably when the 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 um Universal Translator isn't working. Odo speaks Bajoran. Like, but there's a similarity there with there's that tension between how they look and who they are. And like the erasure of whether they count as who they are. Yeah. And also like how transactional it is, how like when when it's when who they are is is useful, um, how it's leaned into and then when it's challenging how it's diminished it's just very very powerful but also it just touches on like this my favorite thing about star trek writ large and ds9 in particular too is this like notion of like what i love about this podcast is is like it, it overlays graphic policy kind of overlays um the like our social movements are organizing with these stories and um this set of mythology and uh, in doing so, uh, really shows um, what I think is kind of essential for our survival. And like, for example, we 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 frame it as multiracial, multicultural, multigenerational, like uh, coalition, right? That that we need like this kind of radical solidarity in order to survive. Uh, you know the the you know kind of oppression and economic, racial, all of it, and 
Um, and the way I've, I've come to look at it is like, we are all like in our, a lot of our friend circles, we are Worf and we are Odo and we are, uh, Kira and we're, we're, uh, our societies are organized in these kind of long tables, um, that form a circle. And at the very far end of each of these long tables is like, you know, uh, my friend who lives in the village, but his parents are in Iowa and they're, they're Trumpers and they're on that long side of that table, but their son is at this other smaller edge circle and with me. And then on my table on the far edge, there's like Trumper Bukharians and, um, and, and, so like we're, we're we're all like connected this way and it's not just ethnic it's also like uh like gender and and, and all sorts of different uh, identities and we're in this kind of like circle that's very much like the federation that's very much like ds9 and like my favorite thing both about all of these things and this podcast is really like it it's kind of it, it celebrates that aspect which um I think more and more as we see with white supremacy and to the Texas laws and, you know, misogyny and all those things that this little circle we have is really the antidote. And without it, I don't think we survive. Thank you. That's like really powerful. And, and thank you for the praise as well. Yeah, it's it's a very end of the podcast here. What you know? Anybody got anything know. to plug? Like, Let's wrap it. it up. Kind of like, how, yeah, yeah, like it's such a beautiful yeah. statement about what Star Trek does and what Star Trek means. That concept of like the long table and the small circle, and expanding our sense of who's at our table by who we see in the media and who, which characters and which cultures and which experiences resonate with us. So ironically, it means we're all ambassadors. I mean, we are. Hooray. So, Raf, um, where can our listeners keep up with your amazing work on the in- Well, mostly it's not amazing, but it'll entertain you. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Twitter, uh, Raphael Shimanov. Um, so that's R-A-F-A-E-L-S-H-I-M-U-N-O-V. And as for me... I am on Twitter a little bit too much at E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. Um, you know, always with graphic policy, interviewing comics, writers, writers, artists, creators. Um, and um, and I want to th- urge folks to uh, like and review the podcast on whatever platform you listen to it. It really does help people find the show. And Sarah? I'm Sarah Daniel Rasher. I am on Twitter, not nearly enough by Alana's standards, at <laughs> Padishah, P-A-S underscore D-E-C-H-A-T. That is also who I am on Letterboxd. I um, put my writing, whether it be about the sport of figure skating or the movies I'm watching, or I've got a thing about Batman coming up, as well as oh. some actual writing about figure skating because the season started. All of that is at thefinersports.com. Awesome. Um, and uh, I I guess I'm going to have some other horror movie podcasts on Progressively Horrified, the podcast where we hold horror to, to standards it absolutely did not agree to. Um, and 
I think that's it from us. Oh, one thing I, I know, I, I, uh, I don't know if our next episode is going to be about Gold Ducat, but we are doing an episode about Gold Ducat soon. So if you have questions or things you want us to talk about about Gold Ducat, feel free to email them to us or send them to us at deepspacedive at gmail.com. There's an upcoming Gold Ducat and an upcoming Morn. Oh, right. And yes, we have an, uh, and we have an upcoming Morn episode. So yeah, if you I know we're like, you know, we haven't we haven't done like an episode about Cisco yet, but we've got Gold Ducat and we've got more. That's partially because I have a friend who I really want to have on to do Cisco and he needs to like get ready for it. But um, but yeah, we've got Gold Ducat and Morn coming up. So send us your questions. So thank you for listening. And as Odo says, if you can take a mud bath with Loxana Troy, take that mud bath. <laughs> <laughs>